0: <laughs> a history of comedy. It's several objects. A history of comedy. Come and have a rummage in the archive. A history of comedy. It's several objects. A history
1: of comedy.
0: Come and have a rummage in the archive.
1: Hello and welcome to A History of Comedy in Several Objects, a podcast brought to you by the University of Kent based on the British Stand-Up Comedy Archive. The British Stand-Up Comedy Archive exists to collect, preserve and make accessible material relating to stand-up comedy in the UK. In this podcast we take one object per episode and talk about it to see what it can tell us about the history and form of stand-up comedy.
0: I'm Molly Double. This is Elspeth Miller, and we are very much the butterbeans and Susie of comedy archiving.
1: Mm. I don't know who they are, but I love butterbeans. Butterbeans are lovely, <laughs> aren't I they?
0: I mean, delicious in, and nutritious, right? In a, in a soup. Oh yeah, in a soup like a, like a light tomatoey face yeah. to the soup.
1: Carrot and butterbean was my favourite. Oh, carrot when and butterbean. Yeah. Seriously? I won't say the brand, but yeah. <laughs> Very good. Okay,
0: but Butterbeans and Susie were uh, a fast... They're not even on my list of potential double acts to, to start episodes mm-hmm. with. But while we were talking just to prepare for recording this episode, they just came into my head and I thought we've got to talk about them. I don't know a huge amount about them, but they were an African-American comedy double act who started in 1917... And went through to the sixties. Uh,
1: I was going to say I've not seen them appear in the in the archive. But no, you wouldn't would have
0: done. I know. Um, but the thing about that's cool. Well, there's lots of things that are cool about them. They, they worked on what was known as the Chitlin' Circuit, which was a sort of um, a kind of vaudeville circuit um, aimed uh, at black performers, black audiences. Um, it was run by a thing called the called Toba, I think it was Theatre Owners Booking Association. And I think that they moved beyond that and got more widespread fame. But what's cool about them is not only did they do comedy, but also music, like funny songs. And sure, if you listen to the recordings now, you might go, go on, it's a bit stereotype kind of thing. Um, But the thing is, you have to bear in mind the state of American racial politics at that time. That was the only option available to them. But also what's cool about them is, first of all, they're still funny. And secondly, the music is cool. Um, You know, they recorded with Louis Armstrong, for example. Uh, and apparently, uh, yeah, they, I, I, I don't know if this is true, but I read that they married on stage, which is... Uh, if that's true, that's fantastic. Mm. And, um, you know, it's it's interesting. There's um, There was an American, a black American comedian, Pygmy Markham, who started in black blackface. This is being a thing where black performers would copy white performers imitating black people. And they would put... Um, well, they wouldn't copy them, but they would take elements of that so they would sort of put uh, you know a a makeup over the natural colour of their skin and they would whiten their lips and things and that's how um, Pygmy Markham started out and then later he he abandoned that but he recorded a a song called Here Comes the Judge which is recognised as one of the roots of rap music Mm -hmm. and it's really cool it's a very cool song Um, so yeah Butterbeads and Susie uh, both uh, funny funny comedians (laughs) and great music too um, so, yeah, but we're not talking about that this episode. This episode we have been working on for months, literally months. I mean, I would say probably over a year, but there have been a few things which we don't need to go into. It's not that interesting, but it's some things that have been quite tricky to sort out, which we've eventually managed to sort. And the backstory to this episode begins with an email we received from somebody in Germany called Michael held Hernandez. And I think you've got the email there, Elspeth.
1: Yeah, so he says, Currently I'm working on my thesis, which is a comparative stand-up comedy study looking at comedy by African-American and black British comedians. I was wondering if there are any objects in your stand-up comedy archive by black British comedians or relating to them. It was quite interesting to me to find that there is not necessarily a long-standing tradition of black British stand-up comedy especially when one compares this to the US which has a black comedy tradition that reaches back till the 19th century naturally we are talking about two completely different historical backgrounds
0: yeah that's right um and it's a really good question you know how how much stuff have we got uh from black british comedians and the answer is we've got some right um
1: yeah within other collections yeah kind of within within kind of collections like the Linda Smith collection and Uh, Monica Babinska
0: Okay, uh, and and so what what was the object That we decided to pick out to base this episode on?
1: Uh, Well the object is from your collection Actually, so it's an interview That you recorded in 1990, January 1990 With Felix Dexter
0: With Felix Dexter, that's right So it's an interview that I did when I was doing my PhD I'll say more about uh, The the kind of context of the interview uh, When we come to actually play An excerpt from it, but I think the key thing about this episode is um, that we are aware, Elspeth and I are aware, that neither of us is actually black and we don't want to tell a story that, in a sense, isn't ours. So, what we've done is we've talked to some some black comedians, and of course, we've got the audio of Felix Dexter, and we want to, as much as possible, let them tell their own story. So, we're going to start with a a clip from one of our interviewers, uh, or one of our interviewees, sorry, uh, John Simmett. Now, John Simmett is a comedian and comedy promoter. We'll find out more about him as we continue through the episode. But we're going to start with the fact that he's probably best known for something else. Mm. Let's have a listen to, to him talking about that.
2: They didn't give us much detail as to what the show was about. And also, they didn't even have it commissioned. They were, Ragdoll Productions were one of a number of companies pitching, three companies pitching for this new slot to replace something called Playbus. <laughs> Anyway, they said they'd be in touch, and they're like, what well, I did? And I remember thinking, well, it's a long, long run. Um, long odds on this, because one, they haven't even got the commission. Two, well, I didn't hear back. So they got the commission. They contacted me. It was initially something called, the idea was something called Telly Teddies. But it turned out that name had already been, you know, copyrighted by some other TV company. So they became Telly tobies Bun- So I was the first person cast. And then I'd go to Wimbledon. I was remember every every few weeks to try and a prototype Almost like those suit world costumes that you you know you have at the seaside. And in it for a suit thinking. And if I remember if I'd got that 75 quid, so that was like 25 pound train fare, 50 quid for the day. And you're only in there for 25 minutes. I remember it was summertime, 95, so I'm thinking, well, if this is gonna happen, but if it's going to happen. It's a nice diversion. They I mean, had been cast and that they got the commission and they were casting the other actors. And the rest of this history, I've never met Dave Thompson funny enough who was Tinky Winky for just for the first series. And the ironic thing is, he and I gigged at the downstairs at the King's Head weeks before we we met on Teletubbies. And we hadn't even clicked, so we us starting to rehearse and putting on these embarrassing in and one-piece, like cowboy underwear. And we got like, oh, hang on, I do like, know on, whatever the place is called, downstairs at King's Head, so I'd met him only a few weeks before that. Even though i been on circuit for four or five years. And you know the thing took off, as you know, and I would say one thing is that when filming one of the first sketches, it's like being inside a post box, so you've got no peripheral vision. I always remember thinking, "Wow, you know, um, this is really strange i no no one no, no had an idea how it was going to take off, but I would say I remember being inside the um looking out at the office from within a post box, and this is a bit different i remember I've been rehearsing for months by then we've been doing anything wrong even from I was in the show thinking this is very strange I remember thinking it'll either be really big I make the point again nowhere near as big as it became or we'll, you know, it'll disappear <laughs> you know, it'll be, it's very out then what I remember is that a number of the crew on the show had come off El Dorado the BBC soap opera I remember thinking that we as performers, you can't plan a career because anyone with a brain offered the choice of title or El well, Dorado would have chosen El Dorado because you get seen as a performer. <laughs> You're not in a first suit, and it's a soap, and it's filmed in Spain, and they put a lot of money into it. This is a preschool TV show. You're in a first suit, so what the heck? You can't can't cause too much embarrassment. I was thinking at the time, so let's take, and it's, you know, it's, it's a three-year contract, which those don't come out very often in TV. So six months on, six months off. So. But then, to our total surprise, the thing became huge. And, you know, we sat on a number one. I've got a platinum disc downstairs. It's taken us around the world. Breakfast TV in quite a few countries or whatever. And it's in something like 123 countries. So, uh, by any definition, it's a cultural phenomenon.
0: So, yeah, um, John Simmett was, uh, was Dipsy in, in, in the Teletubbies, um, a personal hero of, of both of my children who were of the right age to grow up with the Teletubbies. And actually, Dipsy was probably their favourite. So, yeah. Um, but in addition to being Dipsy, uh, and much more importantly for, from our point of view today, is that John has also been a stand-up comedian for over a quarter of a century, for over 25 years. Uh, here's how he started out.
2: I was an arts council um, trainee turned marketing officer. So i a long story short. I finished there and I went freelance and uh, one of the first jobs I got outside of Birmingham was in London working on what's happened with the last London Black Theatre season. And while there, I started watching a few shows at both the Albany and Hackney Empire, I remember specifically I came across Curtis and Ishmael, Curtis Walker and Ishmael Thomas, Liam Mohammed, and a few other people who were Probably there a year, a year later with the cast of The Real McCoy. So anyway, as with anything, you go and watch shows and then uh, you see a few people think they're about the same age as me and they're talking about similar experiences. The tail end of that year, basically, of 1990. There was a comedy show booked at the Cave Art Centre in Moseley, in Birmingham, where I was, had a freelance marketing contract and I volunteered my services to be the host. Based on that, on a one-off. Introducing people for 20 quid, as it turned out, it was a paid spot. <laughs> The lineup Curtis was Curtis and Ishmael, Liam Armigan, short, sharp and shocking. Literally, practically the whole cast of the first Real McCoy a year later. And that show was such a success that the Cave Art Centre, which is no longer there anymore, but were lacking in shows to book. Booked another show and booked me again as a compare. So for the next two or three years, every month, four other a month, there was a comedy show. In which I managed to persuade the director basically to say, oh, you know what, make it's a regular part of your billing. It will allow us to sell the other stuff we're doing, you know, theatre, dance, drama. It was a very small art centre, only 110 seats, former cinema. So because I made up parts of their booking, I became the resident host. So I literally started off as a resident host of a club. And it closed down in 94, by which time I'd already done some telly and started to set up up some time. That's a very long-winded answer, but that's how I got started.
0: So, yeah, it's quite interesting. He got into it in a very roundabout way. I just should mention that this was a telephone interview, obviously, and uh, John was on his mobile. So the sound quality is less than optimum. Um, But I think that what he has to say is so interesting that we've got a bunch of clips from that interview, including one that's that's nearly six minutes long. So if you can just bear with us, listener, uh, that would be much appreciated. So, yeah, that's that's, uh, how John... Got into it. So who who were the important black British comedians around when he started out?
2: Acts yes, I saw not just Curtis Walker, Liam Chester, he then was the late Colette Johnson. Um, there was also Body Hell, i trying to hide. I don't remember. There weren't that many acts, you know. so I still look onto a lot of these guys. I've been in Z Felix a little while late because I don't think he was doing that many of those gigs. I think I came across Felix once I started taking myself in terms of watching. It was just that handful of that. Angela Mara, of course, can't forget her. No. In fact, before I went to a comedy show, she was the first comedian I saw because i have been DJing for 30-odd years as part of a sound system. That's still like, a passion. And we were booked to play some big events in London many years ago. We're talking about pff, probably around 1990. Went to some club in London with our sound system to play, and they had a guest comedian, and I was in fact, was Angie. I was fascinated because it wasn't a comedy show, it was, you know, she was doing comedy in a rave, which many black comedians have done since then and decided it's part of you growing up. You haven't been a comic until you've died in a nightclub, but you really want to, weren't there for comedy. And suddenly get announced, stop the, pop, the most popular tune of the time. And so we've got a comedian for you. So, but Angie did really well, and I was thinking, well, not only was she funny, but that couldn't have been easy, you know, because we didn't know she was on.
0: So, so, I mean, one of the things is when I was doing that interview with John, that I was having to suppress laughter. Not that what he says is necessarily overtly funny, but if you've done comedy, if you've done stand-up, the idea of being on in a rave, you know, instantly your soul kind of just sinks through the floor. But also his description of, you know, they put the most popular tune of the night and then suddenly they put a comedian and nobody is interested. To me that's really funny because I've been through similar experiences. I've never performed at a rave, but I remember being on a student night at a sort of disco or you know nightclub in in Sheffield uh, student disco that type of thing and you know just as they put the tune of the moment on they just stop it and you they put you on and of course everybody just hates you <laughs> so uh it was interesting to hear him say that you know.
1: So how would those nights have been advertised as like a rave <gasps> I, <yeah>. with comedians? <laughs>
0: well that's the whole thing you know it's it's the whoever's put that event together hasn't really thought about how it's going to work or not work. I mean, I have to say, I mean, I remember being on the bill with Angie Angela Moore in London and she was good. But I mean, to be able to not only sort of um, perform in that s- set of circumstances, but also to do well. Yeah, that's amazing, actually. Mm. One of the comedians he mentions there is um, Buddy Hell. Now, that's not uh, the only name that, that that guy goes by, is it?
1: No, his real name is Ray Campbell. So we... We've got some material from Ray. We had a recent episode with Ray. We did. On Cabaret Gogo, which was the club that he co-ran in Newcastle. That's right. I can't remember his other names though. In that episode we talked about a lot of names yeah. he went Was the was one, one Les Bogrol. Yeah, that's the, yeah, that was the other one I was just thinking of. But I can't remember the others. He had about four or five. Didn't yeah. He? Yeah. So so we've got some material from him. It's mainly mainly to do with Cabaret Go-Go. lots of promotional material, flyers and posters. And then we do have material relating to his kind of solo comedy as well.
0: Yeah, so it's quite nice that the collections speak to each other in a way, that they sort of tie up with each other. Um, That's one of the things I really like. In other words, we've got collections from multiple different sources, but you you can find, oh, there's a version of this from this, and there's a version of this from this, or this is about this performer who's not, you know, donated. But also in this other collection, we've also got something about the same performer.
1: Yeah, a lot of them link together quite nicely. And and it does give you... Because they're, um, they're quite broad, their collections. Although um, we might not have material from a particular comedian, there's often bits in each collection that you can then piece together to find out information about their performance style. Yeah. Um,
0: and obviously, Felix Dexter is an example yeah, of that. Yeah, absolutely. So who are the black comedians that Ray remembers from the early 1990s?
3: Uh, that was BBC Two's cultural slot called The Late Show. And as far as I remember, that was part of a series of programs that was on late at night on BBC Two. Um And eventually, The Late Show ended up becoming part of Newsnight. But that particular uh, program was a black comedy special. And uh, as I recall, that same edition also featured Twin Peaks. um, (laughs) David Lynch's Twin Peaks. So, yeah, quite quite interesting that, really. But, But the actual recording of that a uh, black comedy special took place at the electric cinema in notting hill and uh, yeah in those days i used to smoke cigarettes on stage well i, I don't smoke anymore um and um black comedy or com- comedy with black people was quite a um a recent thing i suppose uh, even for the so-called alternative comedy uh, scene uh, there weren't many uh, black comedians around in those days. Uh, the only one that I could think of was Felix Dexter uh, and, of course, Miles Crawford being another one. Oh, and Sheila Hyde. She was another one. But the others, the other black performers tended to be mainly poets and uh, musicians.
0: I think. I think what's really interesting about that is that you can't stereotype at all. I mean, obviously, that's an obvious point, but my point is as soon as you start stereotyping, you stop seeing... The the important differentiation that exists. So, John Simit's, um perspective on the history of recent the recent history of Black British comedy is different from Ray Campbell's, mm-hmm. and that's because they're different people with different sets of experience. Um, and I think that that it would be silly to 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 lose that. Uh, interestingly, uh, that he mentioned Ray mentioned there the Black Comedy Special. Um, So what this was, it was an episode of The Late Show uh, on BBC Two, which was broadcast on 30th of April, 1990. And it was about a thing called the Black Comedy Club. Here's Ray talking about that.
3: Well, the Black Comedy Club was actually set up by David Bryan and Jenny Landreth. Jenny Landreth is uh, Mark Thomas's partner. And they... Uh, as far as I remember, because I interviewed both of them for my, uh, my thesis, uh, they'd seen live at the Apollo, uh, the original, the, the, the Harlem Apollo, not the Hammersmith Apollo. And they wondered why there was nothing like that in this country. So they decided to set up Um, the Black Comedy Club, and the first gig, as far as I remember, was at the Albany Empire, and I remember doing that in 1989. Um, And then, of course, the Electric Cinema came along, I think, a year later.
0: So now, uh, the Black Comedy Club was, was in a sense, the beginning of a kind of black British comedy scene. Not that there hadn't been black stand-up comedians in Britain before, because there had... But, the, but it was the start of a scene that's kind of grown from then to now. And John Simmett is super important in the story of that scene, I think, um, because basically he set up a thing called Upfront Comedy Club and he quickly had branches of that uh, all around the country. And so when I was talking to him, he explained how that had got started. So the story was that uh, there was this Birmingham Comedy Festival coming up and he'd been talking to uh, Malcolm Bailey and Keith Duddy about running a black comedy night at one of the big theatres. And here's how he explains how things
2: continue from there. The local Watson said there's going to be a comedy festival. when I mean, he was the first I allows that whole oh, great idea I found out who these guys was. I went down there and said, well, I'm um, the host of a comedy show, at The Little Arts Under the Cave, once a month, and it would be a really good idea to, you know, why don't you have a big black show at the Alex or somewhere like that you know, proper theatre? as part of your festival. And I always said these guys did me a real favour because they said, nah, that I'm not working. Two things stayed with me that I think Keith, Keith said something along the lines of, oh, there's a recent tour, which he didn't realise I'd been to. I think it was something like one of those a sponsored tours, so it featured the likes of Curtis and his mail, and Joe Brand, Jack D, and different, a number of venues. But they were not big names, obviously they were the best circuit names of the time. So he said, oh, that didn't sell, but I remember thinking, well, I know. Potentially, we have an audience if we if we do it right. So, I didn't tell him I'd seen that, but I thought, well, I, really, I was genuinely a light bulb moment having never put on a show in my life and only two years into stand up. barely. I thought, well, I market shows for a living because that's what my day job was: marketing theatre shows for theatre companies, and I'm making enough money to, you know, from not from comedy, but from marketing. Why not just do it myself? It was really that moment. So I went to the Alexander Theatre, found out that it cost was £2,000 to hire, which is 1992. I look back now thinking, you know, things must have been going well if you can take a venture. I bought some of the few comics I knew, which was, uh, the lineup was Curtis, who was then split from Ishmael, Leo Mohammed, Riles Crawford, Roger D, Angela Marr, and the double-act, Aimer and Powell, both of whom no longer do stand-up, and myself. So, I booked it for Bank Holiday May. The logic being Bank Holiday Sunday is always a good day because people are looking for something to do. And I spent three months marketing it. And I remember in those days being outside raves and everything else, giving out flyers, people saying stuff like, oh, what is it? And then, so I'm saying, well, it's stand up comedy. And they were like, that's like, CS so I said, no, it's a bit like Lenny Henry, but not. So, that was my, 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 my reference point. I'd say it's a bit like Lenny Henry, if you want, but not like Lenny Henry, i.e., it's us talking about our experiences. Obviously, Lenny had a totally different journey. And he was, you know, coming up for predominantly white audiences, whereas we, unbeknownst to us, were creating a circuit which was friendly to black audiences. So we came up talking to our peers so we didn't have to make the compromises. Some of our pioneering predecessors had to. I marketed the thing for three months, and with two weeks ago we'd sold 200 tickets, or just under 200 tickets. Bear in mind, this is a 1,400 seater. I remember thinking... I don't want to be really embarrassed. I've worked hard, really, but we don't have that big theater. Then, most of us are unknown that there's not a comedy circuit at the time. But In the last 10 days, I now you've learned something about the audience because a lot of 800 tickets were shifted in 10 days. This is after three months of marketing. So I realized that people have different booking patterns. So we did 996 tickets for my first ever show. And... It was a big success somewhere out there in my house. is a, a little bit of audio tape is all I've got of it, apart from the flyer. And it was a roaring success. People laughed hard and not said anything like it. And pff, everyone else was all, what are you going to do? I thought, I'm, I'm carrying on Monday at the cave where I'm booked as host. I'll do the same thing next year. So I've got There's a one-off show. Next year, there's a show called The Posse, which I don't know if you remember, but it was a, in fact, it was a tribute to Junior Simpson's late brother, Calvin Simpson, who was an actor who was between jobs and was killed while on his bike, you know, to work as a courier. Some actors got together at the Theatre the Royal Square at East, put a show together as a tribute to raise money for his family. That sketch, was one of the best sketch shows I've ever seen, led to a group called The Posse of Actors You'll Know. They did a couple of tours and, but the first tour ended in Sheffield at the Crucible Theatre. And this is important and relevant because the show was so funny, I saw it about six times in Birmingham and, and London. People, again, who were not being catered for all over the country converged on the, the Crucible Theatre in Sheffield. Rammed it out for last week, and the late director, Stephen Barry, RIP, wanted something to follow up the posse with. He contacted the Alexander Theatre, told, told him that this Birmingham guy put on a show, which got a huge amount of black people through it all. So in January 93, I got a call from Stephen Barry, wanted to talk to me about doing a black comedy showcase up there. Went up and met with him. I uh, said okay I'll, I'll make you a deal I'll, put, I'll take a risk on the show I'll pay the ads and all that just give me the theatre and but if it works I want a monthly comedy club from the autumn you know with me as host, and he agreed to that and it all went well so on the back of that September 93 the first Upfront, actual show called Upfront Comedy started at the Crucible Monthly Theatre in Sheffield Monthly and then as you go on more and more venues Yara Santo and Art Centre in West London got in touch Quarmba in Bristol, in Quartz, it was in court. More, the more you worked, the more people started hearing and you didn't realise you were actually, because as many of the cases, just because what you do, you don't realise you're creating something. But at one point, you know, we were running monthly clubs everywhere. Then what happened was in 1993, Edinburgh Festival, so this is all within a, like a three-year period, Went up to watch, and there was two black shows that yeah, I remember of notes. One was Dave Chappelle, who was then 19, doing a show called Tick Whitey Man and a show called Stand Up Black like America. So they were so glad to see a few black people. We, we all hung out for a little bit, and one of the comedians who became a very good friend called Ian Edwards on Stand Up Black like America says to me at the tail end of that year, I would like to tour. And again, I think about these things. I, think, I said, I'll send me some videotapes, which he did of various New York comedians. I selected a few, three, including himself. And we had an eight-city tour in March and April of 94. And again, bear in mind, this is just because someone says, I would like to tour. I've never put on a tour, just like I've never put my show two years before that. Uh, well, I'll just put you in the venues that I book. So they got an eight sixty tour, and again, people are like when you're going to do it next time. I said the same time next year because I was very, very much into doing structural stuff. This is my big annual show. These are my regular monthly shows.
0: So there was a there was a, a lot of thriving and growing, um, like quickly growing black comedy scene that that was that was happening through things like Black Comedy Club and Upfront, and. Quite quickly, the BBC picked up on this and put on a programme called The Real McCoy. Now, people who are old enough will probably remember that. It was a big hit show. And to me, it's slightly inexplicable how it's sort of not better remembered. Uh, you know, It's never been put out on DVD, as far as I know, for example. And a lot of the people who John and Ray have mentioned were in The Real McCoy. It ran from 1991 to 95, So a five-year run, that's a pretty good run. John was involved in in, uh, The Real McCoy as a studio warm-up man, you know, um, warming up the audience before the sketches. It was a mainly sketch-based show, but he also did uh, bits of his stand-up act on it, and you can find those on YouTube, and I would advise you to do so, because that's cool. But Felix Dexter, the subject of our episode, also appeared on The Real McCoy in, I think, two of the series of it, and he did characters some very, very funny characters. So here's John talking a little bit more about the real McCoy. It's
2: a groundbreaking show, not only that, it actually, to be, the audience recognised the characters because often we're really depicted by people, either white, written by white people who know nothing about that culture or black people who go hang out with black people. So not only was it funny, obviously any sketch show's going to be ups and downs, some sketches don't work or whatever, but not only was it funny, but it rang true.
0: So I think I think that's really um, important, that thing that about self-representation, about about British black people, you know, because uh, exp- that's the point about stand-up really is that stand-up is modern, the modern style of stand-up that's not just a bunch of old gags. It's about sort of observing the world uh, from your perspective. I know there are, examples where it's not it can be absurdism and or it can be all sorts of different things but you know many many comedians the the basic form of what they do is they make funny observations that they personally have made about the world and diversity in stand-up is really important because otherwise it gets boring because we essentially have such a limited set of viewpoints if it's just a bunch of straight white men Saying it, so that point about—he's uh, I mean, not talking about stand-up in this case. He's talking about uh, sketch comedy. But that point about sketch comedy representing actual black experience is is super important. Um, and it was an amazing change from how things had been in the nineteen seventies. This is Ray Campbell talking about the black comics he'd known about as he was growing up.
3: When I first saw uh, stand-up comedians in this country. It was in the early 70s and it was The Comedians on ITV. Uh, Well, it was on Granada Television then. That was the production company. And the only black comedian I remember seeing on television was Charlie Williams and and, uh, maybe Joss White, I think it was, and maybe one or two others. But yes, very much in the shadow uh, of black American comedians. I mean, in those days, Richard Pryor probably hadn't hit the big time, so... The black American comedians that I recall were people like Dick Gregory, who did a lot of stuff around race and politics, and the other one was uh, Red Fox, who was rather blue, um, who I don't think I saw on television, but he he later appeared in a uh, the American version of uh, Steptone Son called Sanford and Son.
0: So I mean, you know, one of the things about somebody like Charlie Williams was that I mean he grew up in, I think, South Yorkshire, um, as obviously, yeah, he was born in 1930, so he was, it was a small uh, village, and if you imagine a small village in, in South Yorkshire in 1930, clearly he's you know his family is the only black family and so he very much sort of takes on a white perspective i mean john was saying in one of the earlier clips about uh black people who who who've grown up around white people kind of thing well he he was one of those really and he did it so was quite interesting but I mean, he was a very likable comic very you know very sort of warm presence and so on but a lot of his uh comedy could be it could be argued was pandering to to a white audience not just a white audience but but arguably a white racist audience. I mean, I say arguably, definitely in some cases, because in his autobiography, he wrote about playing in working men's clubs where they, he wouldn't have been allowed in as a member because of being black. And, he, you know, mainly it would have been old gags, you know, a fellow walks into a pub, this Irishman, that kind of thing. And although he did make fun of Enoch Powell, the um, conservative and then other parties um, politician who did the infamous rivers of blood speech in 1968 he did gently mock and ridicule him calling him knocker male mate knocker you know that kind of thing Uh, a lot of the jokes that he told were essentially self-deprecating about race Um, so so what you've got is a very formulaic approach where first of all a lot of what you're saying is is old gags and then also um You know, playing into ideas not just about race but also immigration um and the same with joss white and sammy thomas and and others who played that circuit i mean you can 't condemn them i don 't well i don't think i don 't feel empowered to condemn those people because what other choice did they have if they wanted to work in that arena right you know if they wanted to work in that realm where the main site of stand up comedy at that point was working men 's clubs, which were you know bastions of sort of traditional white work class values, uh, which at that time, you know, would, would I mean, you know, the National Front was electorally quite successful in in the seventies. Enoch know, Powell's "Rivers of Blood" speech was was very popular with a lot of white people in this country. So, you know, th- th- that's that's who their audience was. What else could they do? They'd have had to be total geniuses to to have challenged that in a more thoroughgoing way. However. You know, that still doesn't mean to say we should necessarily, you know, listen to and enjoy that now. And that's not the comedy that's, that's appropriate for now. Um, and so um, what's interesting is that Ray also mentioned Richard Pryor because Richard Pryor, the, uh, black comedy in America was way ahead uh, of, of black comedy in the UK. I mean, arguably the greatest sort of stand up comedy film or, you know, of, of all time, is Richard Pryor's Live and Concert, which I think was filmed at the beginning of 1979. And we had nothing like that in the UK. And here's, here's Ray talking about the importance of Richard Pryor as an influence on stand-up.
3: He was one of my influences. When I thought of comedians, I thought of him. And then I thought of George Carlin because he was another one of my influences. Yeah. Uh, the interesting thing about Richard Pryor, though, is that the the numbers of white comedians who also found him inspirational
0: and I, th- I think that's that's really important that i think it's a difficult thing if you start regarding black comedy as a genre and an entirely separate genre comedy is comedy and within black comedy there's an awful lot of variation of course because stand-up comedy is about individual expression and you know to to, to Of course, there will be things that, you know, as a black British person, you have in common with other black British people. But there'll also be things that make you individual and unique, and that's going to be expressed in your comedy. And uh, the same with with American, and black American comedy at the moment. It's incredibly diverse, um, from Chris Rock to Marina Franklin to Eric Andre to... Hannibal Burris, um, you know, they're, they're all really, really different from each other. I mean, a bunch more that I haven't mentioned, but they're really, really different from one another. And uh, I think that uh, that that you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't forget that. It's really important to not stereotype. Talking of which, here's Ray talking about uh, being stereotyped.
3: I was kind of expected to like soul music and, and reggae. Well, I like both. I mean, I like reggae, but I, I do like rock music more. And yeah, I mean, I was... I was probably more influenced by post-punk than I was punk actually right Uh, I think initially punk kind of alienated me I was a bit confused when I saw it for the first time and I think I got into punk a little after it had kind of waned slightly and then of course post-punk kind of overlapped with punk anyway yeah Uh, and so yeah I mean I I discovered bands like The Fall and uh, Gang of Four and just thought wow this is this is refreshing, this is different, this is great, you know. It's but it's also engaging with ideas too, which is what the Gang of Four did especially. And and with the fall, of course, it was all about working class auto di- the, the working class autodidacticism of Marquis e. Smith, who was quite erudite, who was a, a, a massive reader of books.
0: So yeah, I mean the the key thing there is you can't you can't predict what people's influences are going to be. The fact that, that Ray, as a, a black British comedian, was influenced by Mark E. Smith of The Fall, you know that's it, not a black British person nor a comedian. Although you know there are obviously comedic elements in The Fall's lyrics of all you know not sorry laugh out loud funny, but scabrous kind of satirical commentary, that kind of thing. You know, you, could, you just can't predict how people are and, and nor should you because that's that's the reason that, you know, you challenge racism and challenge, challenge stereotyping in the first place, I think. So anyway, that's that's we've got a sense of who Ray is. We've got a sense of who John is. Uh, so what did John make of Felix Dexter as a person?
2: It was a one-off because there was, no, I don't mean this as a performer, as an individual. You know, I mean, I think I have said so because I was featured in that um to i was trying to get the I've known him for years, I've stayed at his house a couple of times, you know, after gigs as you do, went gigging in London. And i knew the guy for years, missed the guy immensely. And you know, I'll say, you know, I never, I never felt I fully got to know him. And it's not that he was putting up barriers, but he was very private. You know, I produced three tours, I think, with him, national tours and whatever. And so, you know, we can on really well and so on, but boy, yeah, um... He was not an easy guy to know, you know, friendly enough and so on, but, you know, everyone had their own, you know, own versions. of it. I remember one time he said to, he had a, a, a plaster above his eye or something, like I said, oh, he said he got into a fight. I'm like, you, What was just beautiful. He did me some tactic here. He, he's a guy who even learned to drive late. When he finally learned to drive, I mean, I'm, I can say that with a smile because I still don't drive. But he was one of the late bloomers, learned to drive late, got a good car and all that sort of stuff. And like, his career took off for a while, even though he could have gone even further. But anyway, even something like I'm saying, he had a fight, he got into an argument of, you know, some taxi security off London, and him and some guys, exchanged blows. He, was, he seemed to a mild for that. but he's no one's fool, as you know, and he's a very smart guy, very, very individualistic, but he's a hard guy for me as somebody who, who liked and worked with him many times. It's a hard, he's a hard guy for me to sum up in a few words.
0: And what did John make of Felix as a comedian?
2: At one point, I remember someone, a couple of people saying he's the best black standup stand-up. This is going back to we're now talking mid nineties, and I wouldn't necessarily have agreed at the time. He was a very good stand-up, but his stuff was predominantly doing the white, you know, the white gigs. And when he came over and started doing the black gigs, it was not a big deal. He was just somebody who was, com- you know, competent, got some laughs, but didn't do thing Okay, oh, he When he started to explore the character stuff, that's when things really took off because he was a good and competent stand-up. But though you know, those sketches which were probably his legacy on the real McCoy, particularly the Douglas character, I think. Those transformed both, I think, his sense of confidence and what he could do, and also transformed his image in the audience's eyes, whereas before he might have seen a little bit of a white guy on the black circuit, a bit white. You Not know, as an insult, but you know, he doesn't... He clearly doesn't you know, go out with many black people. His observation was so keen and so sharp, everyone knew that black guy who's... And that's a sense of... I suppose a sense of self, as well in his case. Everyone knew that black guy who with that really like black food or black music. <laughs> But there again, we have to play the role. Oh, yes, I really like that uh, Michael Marley, or whatever his name is, Bob Jackson. And you what's know, well, Phoenix really well, he's a big soul man, and, you know, elegantly dressed all the time, all that sort of stuff. But uh, it's, it's, it's character stuff which moved him forward, ironically, in so many ways and increases audiences. And that's what the people wanted. And the same, I think Terry Jervis was the, the director of the BBC, used to do music programs or whatever it is. He was on a walk, Felix, into character stuff because until he started doing that, I didn't even think of him as a, as a character comic. He was a stand up.
0: Yeah, that, I think John has a really good point there that, that Felix wasn't just a stand up comedian, but also a sketch comedian on TV and also, I think, radio as well. Um, not only was he in The Real McCoy, but he was also in a thing called Bellaby's People, uh, where he played various characters uh, on TV. Very, very funny characters. Uh, yeah, he's a very sort of versatile performer. So what did, what did Ray make of Felix?
3: Well, it was probably 1986 or 1987. Uh, my then-girlfriend and I, uh, we used to go to a lot of cabaret shows. Uh, we'd just get a copy of Time Out, open it up, have a look through. And one day we thought, oh, let's go to this place. I think it was the Meccano Club. It may well have been. It may have been another place, actually. Uh, there weren't that many gigs in those days. Uh, anyway, we went along and Felix was on the bill, and it was, uh, you know, for the first time, I saw a black comedian on a British stage who wasn't playing up to expectations. In other words, he didn't fall into that performativity trap of playing black, you know, and, and it was really refreshing, and uh, we, uh, my girlfriend and I were really impressed by, by him, and... Um, we we vowed to go and see him again because he he was that good um and i i think also the thing about seeing felix was that it gave me encouragement you know that i could i could go ahead and do this myself because i'd actually just started doing comedy up in newcastle and those days there weren't very many black people uh up there and uh, you certainly didn't see any on the stages unless they were musicians um so and I, and I tried keeping in touch with Felix as well you know I mean I'd phone him up every now and again to ask him a bit of advice um and, and to discuss the issue of race on the circuit because I in there was one occasion I think where I I had encountered some degree of casual racism and I just wanted to get get an idea from him what he thought about it but he was very diplomatic and he wouldn't say one way or the other and I kind of just left me a little bit sort of confused in a way, but yeah, oh well.
0: I think one of the things about that is that Felix comes across as quite an enigmatic character. Both of them spoke about how he was sort of quite hard to get to know, quite hard to read, quite a private man. And I've heard that elsewhere as well. Um, but obviously this episode is centering on Felix and uh, a very important figure because... Before this sort of black comedy movement started in the late nineteen eighties, he was already an established act on the circuit. So what um, what material do we have in the British Stand Up Comedy Archive relating to him?
1: Um, so we've got bits a lot of the things that I've got out today we've kind of talked about in previous episodes actually, but so we've got um, the New Variety Cabaret Agency kind of promotional brochure, if you remember. We yeah. talked about it with um, Paul Dudman. At the yes. Empire Archives. Yeah. Um, sorry, University of East London. Um, yeah. Archives. So Felix is one of the performers listed in their kind of, in the New Variety Cabaret Agency brochure. Um, this was the late 80s. So he's, his page is a picture of him. Um, he's just Felix, not Felix Dexter. So it was Felix that he performed under, wasn't it? Well, it's an interesting mm. one, that,
0: actually, because he, he kind of went under... I've got a clip of him on a programme called Cabaret at the Jongleurs from 1988. And at that point, he was known as Dexter Felix. Oh, okay. He was also known as Felix. I mean, when I first... When I met and interviewed him, he was just known as Felix. And then later, he was known as Felix Dexter. So. Okay. He played all the different versions. The only yeah. one he didn't go got, get known as, I think, was Dexter Just by Dexter. itself. Yeah. But yeah, Felix at that point.
1: Okay. Well, here he's described as personal and satirical comedy and impressions.
0: And that's quite interesting because it says impressions, mm-hmm. which um, you know that's the you know that, that that fits with him being good at sketch comedy and characters. You know the fact, and it, in fact, in his stand up, he used to do. Voices And, you know, he used to do, I'll show you with a character now and he'll do, do a bit of character. So, mm. yeah.
1: Okay. Um, we've got some, in Monica Babinska's collection, we've got the promotional photographs, which we looked at um, yeah. previously. Um, so we've got two of Felix. So these were photographs sent to Monica Babinska for, um, for kind of clubs that she was promoting or I nights think. that she was promoting. Um, so this one was sent to her or she was using it of Felix sorry this photograph of Felix she was using to promote the Happy Sundays one of the Happy Sundays events which was at the comedy um the Cockpit Theatre yeah um unfortunately as we talked about in this episode there's no credits there's no kind of um the photographer isn't isn't listed
0: it's a shame because they're both really nice photos as well uh, one of them is Felix in a sort of, I don't know what how you describe that really, a kind of uh, bomber jacket type thing, shiny. Uh, it looks like it's sort of almost like faux leather. And he's he's sitting cross-legged on a chair with his hands on top of his head, uh, looking, <laughs> I don't know, pouting and looking <laughs> slightly ambiguous. I mean, I, I can't read his expression is what I mean by that. And the other one, he's got, he's... <laughs> He's sort of flashing with a flasher mac and he's got a bunch of flowers sticking out from between his legs Mm. and he's got a kind of puppy dog face, (laughs) I would describe that as.
1: But I don't know if that was a kind of a, I mean, it must have been a planned photo, but you can see there's like a member of the public in the background. Yeah, that's that's
0: true actually.
1: It looks like it's outside a theatre or something, doesn't it?
0: Yeah. It's interesting, yeah. The, I, that I would say that the 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 one with the flowers is is a slightly less professional looking shot. It's mm. the focus is not quite as good and the contrast. Whereas the one with him sitting cross legged is really sharp. I mean that's and also that's the one that's associated with Happy Sundays, I think, which was a, a big deal because the the McCona was quite a small club, pub based comedy club, but Happy Sundays was at a, in a in a theatre. So it's a, that's for the the circuit stars really. And at that point, Felix was one of the stars of the circuit. Mm. I mean, he would have been performing. Um, well, for example, he was on a thing called Club Class, a radio show on the radio, and he was he the, the the kind of comedians who were on with him included people like Eddie Izzard. So you know you can see that he was, you know, a very established name at that point.
1: I didn't bring it up actually, but we he did do TV work as well, didn't he? He did. So yeah. In Mark Thomas's collection, there's um one of the scripts for Loose Talk. Right, um, which Mark co-presented. So yeah. Felix was a guest on one of those episodes. Um, so we've got f- a flyer also where Felix um, Felix Texter is performing. So this is from Linda Smith's collection. Um, I think it's dated 1994, and it's a flyer for a comedy benefit uh, for the Anti-Nazi League. Um so, the other performers were people like Eddie Azard, Nick Ravel, Revel, 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 yeah, Jeremy Hardy, Mark Steele, Linda Smith, Kevin Day, Harry Hill, Alan Davis, Mark Hurst, and Mick Hutton.
0: Mick or Mickey Hutton, as he was more commonly known. Um, it's, it's interesting that because you know, to, if you read that today, you'd go, Oh, there's, there's a couple of really famous people, and a bunch of people I've I've heard of and then a couple of that I haven't heard of but actually at the time they were all really big names on the circuit that's the important thing. Uh, yeah and
1: that was for, that was at the ground in Clapham Junction.
0: Yeah. Um, so yeah so I mean he was he was he was an important comedian that's that's the thing that he he started uh on the alternative comedy circuit. Um, which was, you know, largely a white circuit in the sense of many of the performers were white, many of the, the audiences tended to be white. But it's important not to whitewash that, historically. There were quite a lot of black performers, but they weren't necessarily comedians. I mean, um, Benjamin Zephaniah, for example, the great um, sort of dub-slash-ranting poet, um, was 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 a, a big name in the Cassidy variety circuit. Uh, so there, there were actually black performers um and we shouldn't forget them is is my point um and uh you know people like felix we you know we should celebrate um he he died uh, about five years ago, and uh it was good because they did a big tribute to him on the BBC. um but there are other black comedians who were around at the time who are not necessarily well remembered, Sheila Hyde, who was very funny and um uh yeah, so anyway this this um this um, clip that we're going to hear, this is the object. We finally got to the object of the episode. It's is, is an interview that I did when I was, as I said, when I was doing my PhD about the history of British stand-up. And I went to see him at a student bar in the University of Sheffield where I was doing my PhD. Uh, it was a little comedy night they had there. I think it was monthly or fortnightly possibly. Can't remember who ran it. I do remember that the other acts included people like John Thompson who later went on to be in The Fast Show. Uh but but I hadn't seen Felix live at that point. And um I, the thing I remember about his performance was uh that there was a really eggy moment right at the beginning of it where he said um uh he said he said something like, I'd like to start by saying hello to everyone, hello, hello, and he started to say hello to each individual person, but the joke didn't land at all. And he and he kept going for a, I don't know, maybe ten seconds with that, and then he just went, some of you will have noticed I haven't started being funny yet. It was a huge laugh. And from that moment onwards, he didn't look back. It was, it was re- in fact, the gig was all the more enjoyable from the fact that it was apparently rescued from a misstep right, right early on. I remember finding him really funny. And, uh, and then I did an interview with him for about, I think, 15 minutes, uh, just recording onto a crappy little cassette recorder that I had at the time. What's interesting is the audio actually considering that it's like twenty-eight years old, it sounds pretty audible and, and like good quality. There's a you could hear it's not quite running at the right speed, because you know, cassettes were terrible for that, getting the standard speed kind of thing. Um, but 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 I mean in terms of clarity, it's it's pretty good. And in this first clip from it, we're gonna hear how Felix got started in comedy.
4: I've been doing comedy now since, what, 86? I mean, before that I did uh, lots of open spots and things like that, but in any serious way it was about 86. Right. So, so what's your name? Ollie. 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 I've been doing comedy since about 86. Right, cheers. Alright. Uh, uh, so, so how did you get into
0: it? What, what sort of made you go into it?
4: Uh, well, my background is I've done a law degree at University College London. I um, did the course for the bar. I failed the bar. Um, one night I was in Jongleurs. I'd been to America, um, saw um, Richard Pryor, just got really excited about live comedy. I'd always um, been into performing anyway, through singing and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, Arthur Smith at the, the Jongleurs said, um, there's no one to do an open spot. Um, would any one of the audience like to do it? So I was with a girlfriend, and I suppose, you know, a bit of a corny story, just really kind of thought, hey, you know, um, she's going to think a whole lot of me, you know, if I get up there and be funny. Yeah. So that that, that kind of like made me actually stand up and go on the stage. And then it was just giving expression to something I wanted to do anyway. And it um, it followed on from there, because after that open spot, um, they said to me, would I like to come along and do... um, uh, some more stuff that I'd actually written. Yeah. And it kind of like, not exactly snowballed, but it, um, it dribbled on from there.
0: So he started in 86 and by 1990 he was a well-known name on the circuit. That's quite interesting because that that sort of idea of being becoming like, you know, from nothing to, to you know, the top of the circuit as it was then, that's quite a fast turnaround in today's terms. But the, the point is that the circuit was a lot smaller, there were a lot fewer... Performers, so you could become a well known act on the circuit within a year, quite comfortably. Yeah, but the other thing that I asked him about was it's a sort of puzzle in a way why this uh, thing, alternative comedy, which started explicitly with this mission statement almost of non sexist, non racist comedy, why it was so white dominated in a way. Um, I mean, you know, again, I have to qualify that by saying there were black performers involved and they weren't necessarily comedians. Um, and uh, but but I mean so anyway one of the things was I, I sort of asked him about this why why it didn't attract more black audience members more black performers and here's what he said
4: well for a start I mean in Britain obviously the, the, the population is mainly white so yeah. I mean that's going to be represented in every form of activity yeah um a lot of different factors affect the presence of black people both in the audience, or the lack of them in the audience, and the lack of them as performers. Um, it's, it's, it's a social thing, it's quite involved, it's a social and cultural thing, because black people are not totally immersed or integrated in British society anyway, in any sphere. Um, a lot of black people would prefer to go, um, say, to... To a music concert or to other forms of entertainment, yeah. the notion that you go to a special place to get your laughs is one which I think is not easy, easily yeah, absorbed sure. by, by 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 us because uh, I mean I, I have funniest times when I go to the barber shop. I mean, like yeah. the comedy comes out of people just being real together rather than like a performance. But I mean that that is also. It would be presumptuous of me to assume, and I'm not saying that that, 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 that there isn't an interest. Of course, there is in comedy, because I mean, uh, it, it's the black, it, in, it, in, it's right it's in the black community, because people like Richard Pryce, Eddie Murphy, uh, and Lenny Henry are, are black heroes. But I mean, I think that is relevant to look at the cultural aspect. Um, the lack of the performers. I mean, I think the, the factors are innumerable there. I mean, um, but I think there is there is an element of racism in that. I think British society, it's, it's, it's impulse is to say, well, we've got Lenny Henry, we've got one black comedian, what do we need another one for? Um, and also, uh, there's a particular kind of vogue in comedy, um, the people that kind of decide who gets on, who's successful, who's presented to the public. Uh, mainly kind of Oxbridge set the Vogue is a kind of like persona comedy which comes out of a kind of white middle-class person speaking to his own constituency about his own values you know that that's the trend or there will be um, uh, kind of differences there I mean there will be exceptions because there are there are some women and you know there's myself as a black person and um, you know there are one or two gay performers about but I mean if you look at someone like Simon Fanshawe I mean who I think is a very good comedian who is gay. I mean he hasn't in a sense received I think as much acclaim as, as his performing standards might have expected you, might have led you to expect rather. Yeah? Mm. So um, I think that even within the so-called right on establishment of performing in terms of who decides who gets successful there's a lot that needs examining and yeah, a lot of dubious...
0: I mean, it seems like there is, you know, you were saying about the idea of, you know, go to a special place to do comedy, as opposed to it just arising out of normal life kind of mm. thing, and that might not be necessarily, sort of thing that black people do, but there's the Black Comedy Club started up, so there seems to be a need there, kind of thing. Well, I mean,
4: the interesting thing was that the Black Comedy Club was actually started, started up by... Um, A white uh, council. I mean, it's not white council. What I mean is, it's a white lady, um, Jenny, who is very nice. She's got some really good ideas. The impetus for that came from a white liberal source, if you like. Right. Um, And the response to it has been very good. It's been very encouraging, and and there've been a lot of that performance gone along. I am actually been there myself, when and go. I'm doing a gig for them sometime later um, in the year. Um, So the response has been good. So yeah, there is some kind of. Um, apparently need amongst a lot of the black performers to go to such a place. But I mean, there is also an issue of, you know, how patronising is it or how, yeah. um, how how much is it a case of saying, well, you know, you're allowed to do this and being given permission. You know what I mean? I, yeah. Um, sure. You see, there are a lot of black performers around who are funny, and, but they might be doing rap they might be um, right. they might be uh, actors or whatever you know it's it's not do you think it's not Indeed. good idea to discount that, that there are black people around who are funny you know
3: right. and i think that's a
0: really important point you know because uh, benjamin zephaniah would have been funny at times you know uh, even though his main thing was poetry you know he, he was an entertainer as a, you know he was a great performer and you know the same with musicians and what have you and it's interesting it sort of, in a way it takes us back to some of the things john was saying about um, well, it, it, what Felix says there, um, the, the, the idea that black people think don't necessarily, aren't necessarily into the idea of going to a special place to laugh where you can just go to the barbershop and have a laugh with your friends or with, you know, people you know. Uh, but also that thing that John was saying about sort of flyering outside of raves and, and Angie Lamar playing in a rave, you know, that, that that the expression of comedy doesn't necessarily have to come out in the form of a pure stand-up act. It can come out in many different forms. Um, so yeah one of the reasons that we we uh, kind of took ages to get this episode together was that it was difficult given that Felix is no longer with us to get his permission to well obviously we can get his permission to use the clip so do you want to sort of talk a little bit about that
1: yeah so um, obviously a lot of the material in the stand-up comedy archive is within copyright um, and with audio visual recordings that's quite that can be quite complicated because each speaker on the recording will have their own copyright the person recording recording the the um, interview or show has a copyright as well um, so in in this interview for example you as a recordist you have a copyright but you also have a copyright as the, as a speaker as the interviewee but felix has has his own copyright in the words that he's saying, um, so before we can kind of make in copyright material available online um, through through this podcast or through we 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 load some kind of images to Flickr, we need to get the permission of the copyright holders. Um, so. This was quite tricky with this interview. Um, You did quite a number of attempts, didn't you, to kind of contact or try to find any relatives of Phoenix because copyright passes when somebody dies if copyright lasts for 70 years after the death of the speaker. So um, the copyright duration will, will... Exists for quite a long time, so you have to kind of find um, who the current copyright holder is. That's normally next of kin or the estate. Um, so you did quite a lot of investigations, didn't you? I did.
0: Yeah. I mean, I went onto Facebook and said we wanted to do this episode, and did anybody know who we should contact about it? And people, a lot of people just said, "Oh, you own the copyright," which is not actually correct, as you've rightly explained um and then people sort of suggested various people that I could talk to and I talked to a number of different people who knew Felix and you know literally none of them knew who would who might own that I also there's a thing called the Felix Dexter Foundation which I sent a couple of emails to but you know my guess is they're too busy doing other things and they're probably not you know haven't got a massive team to sort of worry about our stuff um so we didn't hear back from them um and then what happened after that
1: um, so we sought some advice didn't we from um, the university's copyright and licensing um, officer and in the end um, we've uh, logged it So we've logged the recording or sp- Felix's kind of contribution I suppose as an orphan work um, as part of the EU um, orphan works register so an orphan work is something that's in copyrights but you can't trace the copyright holder and to log it as such and then be able to use it you have to have shown that you've done lots of diligent searches to to try to find the copyright holder. I suppose going back, if those people said that it was your copyright, they might not be mistaken. Okay. Um, Because, of course, it depends. Well, in this case, it it wasn't. But um, often if you're doing an interview, particularly for, like, I don't know, a broadcaster, they will get you to sign your copyright over. So, you know, nowadays, if you were doing your PhD now... um, I don't know really, but some people might ask their interviewees to assign their copyright to them, so that then they don't have to go back to them um, for permission if they want to publish. Or so, so that might be why some people thought it might have been your copyright. Um, so that's normally if, like, lots of um, there's lots of oral history projects that are going on at the moment. Not not akin to the moment, but normally as part of an oral history project, for example, you would ask your interviewees to assign their copyright to you because. Because of the duration of copyright, it just makes it unusu- unusable um, or really difficult to use um, without copyright permission.
0: That's right. And I mean, I think that one of the things that that I'm really glad that we finally got it resolved in, in the sense that we we it was felt that we'd done enough effort to try and contact whoever might be able to give us permission. Because I just think that Felix is perhaps a slightly overlooked figure in the history of British stand-up and he's certainly a, kind of a pivotal figure in the history of black british stand up in the sense of he wasn't doing what charlie williams and sammy thomas and those sort of people were doing in the 70s doing something completely different he was very much just, you know describing the world as he saw it he was writing his own material and so on and uh, and, and, and yet he was before the, the black comedy started to sort of emerge as a separate scene. So he was a kind of pioneer in that sense. And he was funny. I mean, he was funny. I think he was funny as a stand-up. I, I worked with him later and he was a funny stand-up. And But in addition to that, he was a really funny kind of uh, sort of character comic and sort of sketch comic. So uh, a really important figure. And I think it would have been awful if we couldn't do the episode because we were so worried about the copyright situation. Mm. Uh, and I think it's really nice to be able to hear what his perspective was in 1990 at a point in his career where he'd moved from being an open mic spot in 86 to being somebody who was like really quite a big name on the circuit. It's really valuable for to be able to share that that perspective uh, with the world. But of course, this podcast isn't just about us talking to you. It's also about various ways in which you can get involved
1: Get involved! There are various ways that you can get involved in this podcast, but first you'll need to know how to contact us. You can email us via standup at kent.ac.uk. That's standup, all one word, no hyphen, at kent.ac.uk. And you can also contact us via Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at histcompod.
0: The first way of getting involved is go to our online catalogue, find a listing for a comedy object and nominate it. We'll talk about all nominated objects in future episodes. That's the vanilla uh, uh, version of Getting Involved.
1: The chocolate chip version of Getting Involved is to visit the British Stand-Up Comedy Archive in the Templeman Library at the University of Kent. uh, Look at an object, record a short piece about it, send us the audio and we'll feature it in a future episode.
0: And the daftest way of getting involved is to record your own cover version of our theme tune. And if we like it, we'll feature it in a future episode. Uh, We will give you rewards for getting involved, which include podcast badges and uh, British Stand-Up Comedy Archive t-shirts.
4: A History of Comedy and Several Objects is devised and presented by Dr Oliver Double and Elspeth Miller for the British Stand-Up Comedy Archive. Brought to you by the University of Kent. This is made possible by the University of Kent's Public Engagement Research Fund. Photography by Matt Wilson and editing and production by Matt Hoss.